0: Welcome to Automated Mobility, the people behind the wheel. In this podcast series, we get to know the experts working in the field of automated mobility. What drives them and how do they think their work contributes to a better mobility system? I am your host Henriette Cornet and I am the coordinator of SHOW, a European project testing automated vehicles in real life. SHOW is led by UITP, the International Association of Public Transport. Together, with 70 other partners, we investigate a future where mobility is shared, connected, and automated. Today's episode, Professor William Ricks from the University of San Francisco. Hi, Billy. Welcome to the podcast.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Henriette. I appreciate it.
0: Hi, you okay with me calling you Billy, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I will steer from William today.
0: (laughs) Very good. It's shorter, more more practical for everybody. So, uh, let me introduce you briefly to the audience. You are Billy Riggs, so William Billy Riggs, Associate Professor at the University of San Francisco School of Management, and your research activities focus on sustainable transport, housing and infrastructure.
1: Yeah, that's right. I'm in the University of San Francisco and I kind of like to frame things as I focus a lot on urban technology and uh, since 2015 really been focused on autonomous driving and uh, smart mobility as a core of what I do at the university.
0: Great, yeah. And we want to hear about all that in this episode. We want to get to know you better. But before going into your research activity and yeah, getting to know you better, uh, we may need to set a bit the scene for the, for the audience so that they understand why I wanted to interview you in this podcast series. Also, because so far I interviewed mainly European players, partners, directly involved in the show project, the show who is hosting this podcast. But um, I wanted to expand a bit this, uh, the, the horizon, the horizon of, the, of the podcast series to have also partners outside Europe, And it's also linked with something we do in the project, having a mechanism for international collaboration, which is very much pushed by the European Commission funding uh, the project, with funding the project. Because we wish to have all the activities that we have in the project, we we want to have more impact and visibility outside Europe, so beyond the European borders. And uh, we started already a good work with Japan and I will mention it probably in another episode and people can check online some some of the activity we did there. But we uh, we really want and I really want personally to have more and more connection with US. So here you are. (laughs) Uh, Thanks,
1: I'm honored. (laughs) Uh, You know, I think if I was to look at my personal narrative, I've, I've always been grounded in research and scholarship and teaching as well as... Uh, personal relationships that had me uh, engaging in transatlantic, transatlantic collaborations. Yeah. So I think, you know, my work is uniquely positioned to kind of fit that role. I think mm-hmm. um, just, uh, I don't know if you do you want me to provide a little professional background or, you know, kind of where <laughs> of I came course, from. We will, uh, yeah. we
0: will get to all of this, all of this. It's just like, yeah, that's that's, that's true. I, I realize this by uh, checking your research and everything you've done. And we met in Europe uh, at, at a conference in Europe. So you are very much connected
1: that's with European right, right, partners it, and right, aware
0: about yeah. what I mean there, that's why I think you're a good, uh, a good speaker for making this bridge and tell us more what's what going on, what's going on now in US with automated mobility. We will come to all of that okay. in the right. episode. Let's uh, let's not rush uh, too much. Um, but yeah, that was just a, a short introduction, and I think yeah, we, uh, it will be time to to dig into yourself and know a bit more uh, what you are doing. Um, Just a short question before we get to that. Can you tell us a bit about the University of San Francisco and the School of Management precisely because also the link to automating mobility may not be obvious. Right. Yeah, that's a
1: good question. So, I mean, I think one thing that I bring have brought to the University of San Francisco School of Management. So I'm in a, a business school or a management school that really focuses on cross sector partnership and I had a background, Um, I was at an engineering and city planning school and focused on transportation engineering. I was at a, a school called Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is one of the bigger polytechnic or engineering schools in California. And then really started focusing on autonomous driving. And the Dean at the time at University of San Francisco was really interested in building synergies between city planning, transportation engineering, and uh, this idea of management and operational strategies. Mm-hmm. And so she brought me in to lead this, this Autonomous Vehicles in the City initiative that is really about bringing people from all around the world together to think about the future of mobility in cities. And that's both technical as well as uh, a policy based. And I, I think that's a big synergy I see with, with collaborating with uh, show project and, and my colleagues at Rijkswaterstaat in the Netherlands as well as I know you're involved with the CCAM part, and a sh- partnership and so that, I think there's a number of ways that, that I've found ways to contribute in the EU but we're trying to build that bridge uh, in, in the US as well with the state of California with our Department of Transportation so Okay, but this
0: uh, AV and the city initiative, how can we figure out right. that? So is it a platform? What is it?
1: Where, where is it? Uh, well, it's a, it's a lab that sits in uh, an initiative that sits in the School of Management that really tries to house um, both research and policy initiatives Within uh, the university and the school of management, so we're in downtown San Francisco, a really urban environment. And we've had the opportunity to engage with a lot of these companies that are actually doing the practice of self-driving, and we're doing a lot of the preliminary preliminary, preliminary ridership research on those kind of preliminary de- deployments. So yeah, I, yeah, I want to hear about all oh, that. Great, that's fun, definitely. So, but like this initiative, what
0: something I notice as well is like you are hosting every year. A conference, right? Like gathering partners together to talk about it. So I, I've been into it. Like, a, unfortunately, it was virtually in 2021. But uh, you are hosting it like back in person now, and like every every on a yearly basis to bring all this community
1: together, right? Right, and and we try to bring folks from from both like the public sector as well as nonprofits like UiTP. Um, we brought in a, 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 a MOS based provider from South Africa a couple of years ago. So it's really this idea of bringing, providing a, a forum for both the technologists as well as the, the, the transit providers and the policymakers, and sometimes even the politicians that want to see this mm-hmm. innovation happen in their cities. Mm-hmm. Wow.
0: Yeah. Great. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to the next edition. I just, uh, yeah, I just, uh, the, the last one is, was just very
1: recently. That's right. It was in um, early, yeah. early November.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you tell us also what other activities? Are you really focusing only on that? I think you have kind of a
1: diversity of research activities, if I uh, understood well. Thanks. I I do. I mean, I've got a number of things that I I focus on. I think my my research really started in this passion for street design and civil engineering of streets for multimodal transportation. Uh, But I also do a lot of work in transportation network modeling. Uh, and that's actually looking at different street typologies. When I say street typologies, I mean like one-way streets versus two-way streets, multi-lane streets, and what they mean for admissions, um, what they mean for traffic flow. Um, I do a lot of stuff in right now in kind of urban technology and um, blockchain uh, and how we can actually use different types of technology to, to build and finance infrastructure and particularly transportation infrastructure, green streets, complete streets, uh, and so I think it's it's all grounded in uh, how we how we use technology, really, but really focused on pretty much mobility and, and housing as the core.
0: Mm-hmm. And the city, right, at the that's center of right. this I mean, urban I, environment, is something uh, that's, that's really important to you.
1: Yeah, and cities mean different things. I mean, we have we have rural parts of urban form, we have uh, we have mid mid tier cities, and we have uh, really uh, really large megapolises. And I think it's important to think of those as all different flavors of urban space. And so I try to, you know, you have to tailor different mobility solutions for these different environments. And maybe, maybe we can talk a little bit about that later, later on yeah. in the podcast.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely, we should. And also, uh, I, yeah, and you wrote a book on this very topic, right? And I think we should get to it at the at, at some point in this episode. I
1: mean, I want sure, I'd be happy. To more, happy to dive into it
0: more, more about it. It's more. It will be more. about like, I want to hear about your vision and so on. But before that, uh, how did you end up? In this position, like uh... oh my gosh, I've had a
1: long <laughs> journey. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I graduated uh, with my master's degree in city planning. My background actually was in uh, history, art, and architecture mm-hmm. history, which is uh, bizarre. I, I'm from Kentucky and Indiana. Uh, ended up, I took a job after my master's degree uh, in urban planning. I ended up uh, taking a civil engineering job with the federal government. I was an engineering technology uh, technician with the Coast Guard. So I designed piers and uh, mooring facilities for boats Uh, and what happened is I got more and more interested in connecting uh, transportation and at that point in time was looking at uh, search and rescue for surfers believe it or not and uh, we were looking at uh, how our helicopters can actually better rescue surfers. Mm -hmm. Um, I was also looking at like how we could actually when there's an oil spill so the Coast Guard is responsible for oil spills how we could actually get um, the people who had to travel in cars <laughs> from their homes to the place where their, their C-130s, the big planes, could actually deploy this oil spill response stuff. So I became really interested in transportation at that point. I had a background more in, in urban design and economics at that point and, and really ended up doing a PhD uh, at UC Berkeley uh, focused in uh, transportation planning and engineering. And, uh, consulted for a little while and then found myself in a series of academic roles at both Berkeley and San Jose State University in California, eventually at Cal Poly where I was for six years. And then now in this kind of new blended role where I'm doing both engineering and I think a little more management and operation uh, at University of San Francisco School of Mm -hmm. Management.
0: Thanks, thanks for setting the scene. I think it was good to get to know your background a little bit. I suggest that we now move on to, to to the core, the topic of this of this podcast, which is like automated mobility, and uh, what's a reason why I wanted to interview you is really your work that you are doing with a big player of San Francisco now, uh, operating automated uh, taxi. But you will tell us more in a bit. So it's Cruise, and it's been, from my point of view, I can already say it, it's, be, it's, it's been it's quite a fascinating um, technology what they have there and service, mostly from a service perspective. And yeah, everyone is looking at that now, not only Cruise, there is also Waymo, there is other other players in the States. And um, yeah, we are, from a European perspective, we are very curious about that and we, we uh, I would love to hear more. So um, could you, Describe the service to the audience. Imagine someone who doesn't know at all what it is. How would you describe it and what cruises originally and where it comes from and ever? The yeah, yeah. And I,
1: I, I want to maybe start off by saying, I, mean, I think that you know we can say that California doesn't have the lock on smart people nor smart driving. Uh, but because of the amount of um, investment capital that has been there for, for years, in, in seven, eight years, we've done. We've seen just dramatic growth in amongst uh, you know a couple core companies where they're they're actually able to do full self-driving deployments now, in much in a much different way than I think we're seeing in other places around the world. So uh, there is a lot of interest, and I've been very fortunate that I've been in the epicenter of this this innovation. So i I'm, I would say that I, I say that with humility because I think it's a, it's convenient. Um, and it's and I've been the beneficiary of of the place that I live and, and, and the the environment that I'm in. But yeah, so um, I do a lot of work with a number of these players, but most recently have been uh, a part of a uh, what I think is the first uh, ridered pilot where we've had uh, individuals in vehicles and we've been studying the behavior. Of, of like those real ind- passengers, yeah, ride, like, like real, really like real like passengers a- in yeah. fully self-driven cars. Um, I think what we would call them in industry is level four vehicles. So driving in almost all conditions and, and fully self-driving, no. S- no person in the front of the vehicle is what we call a safety driver. And no
0: one behind the wheel.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the people behind the wheel. There is no one behind the wheel. Um, yeah, so I, I think you would ask uh, a little bit about kind of what these services look like in, in the U.S. Is that is that right? Uh, yeah, correct. Yeah. And Cruise also as a company. Yeah, so uh, so Cruise is a unique company. And I think there are, there are a lot of flavors. I mean, Cruise is, is unique because it's, it is owned in totality by an OEM. So it's a little different for, Example than some of the other companies, whether or not Zoox, which is actually uh, a subsidiary now of Amazon, uh, or Waymo, which is a subsidiary of Google, some more owned by a software company that doesn't actually have an automotive manufacturing uh, component. So they, they're not actually building software for their own vehicles. Cruise is unique, they're, they're owned by GM. And uh, they actually, even though they had a SoftBank investment early on, they've actually been able to buy that. So SoftBank being a Chinese investment uh, company, they've been able to buy that out. So they actually are wholly owned by Cruise now, a couple of other minor, minor investors. But, but Cruise is the main investor in the company. And I think it gives them a unique kind of, uh, scaffolding where you have uh, the vehicle manufacturer uh, really manufacturing a purpose-built vehicle for uh, the software mm-hmm. component. And In so terms have- of
0: robustness, I can yeah. imagine that's just.
1: So, okay. I mean, I think if you were to, sorry to cut you off, but I think there there is a there is a unique aspect of how the the sensors and the the. the the physical attributes on the vehicles really corresponds with the software that's ingesting that data and then actuating the vehicle mm-hmm. or or having the vehicle perform out in the environment. But that that makes this this cruise experiment uh, really unique. But in terms of kind of nuts and bolts on on how the cruise service works, um, they have their own unique app uh, where you know anyone on their smartphone or actually you can use a dialer ride. You will eventually be able to to use a, a non-smart Phone. So if you have a uh, a, a push button uh, mobile phone, you can use the service. But the idea is that you can get an on demand ride that would come get you within a certain within certain parameters. Right now, they're just looking at uh, at off peak hours for transit, and that's mm-hmm. the, what we did for for our assessment. We've done all the assessment on their preliminary uh, preliminary rides. So.
0: 10 p.m. Yeah, to 5 a.m., something I, like that.
1: Yeah, so right now uh, what the service looks like is between the hours of 10 p.m. and 5 a.m., you can use your phone to get a ride. Uh, you can, uh, you you push a button, uh, the, the service comes to you, so you're matched with a vehicle, similar to the way an Uber or Lyft yeah. or a rideshare would work. Uh, when the vehicle comes up, it, it is actually locked, so it is a secured vehicle, and you have to actuate, you know, you have to press a button on your phone to be able to access the vehicle, Vehicle takes you through um, you know, in, in a fully uh, video-based, interactive, uh, screen-based uh, program, uh, takes you through a safety briefing, you have to buckle up. So there's mm-hmm. a, a number of different protocols uh, that you have to go through. Uh, and then uh, the vehicle will carry you to your destination, uh, provides a lot of feedback through that in the, as a part of that ride. Uh, but then uh, you get to that destination, and, and basically it says <laughs> bye That's bye. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so yeah It's yeah. It's, a, it's a very simple. I mean, it's I think it's as close as we've gotten to a mobility as a service autonomous pilot. Um, they're not yet offering. I mean, I think. Um, While you can ride it with your friends, uh, there's not yet a a pure shared service, but um, Cruise is unique also because they definitely have plans to build Mm -hmm. a purpose-built vehicle with a full sensor suite uh, of of radar, lidar, sonar, um, as well as um, some other unique proprietary sensors. That allow for them to actually do uh, really elegant shared rides in a purpose-built uh, kind of people mover.
0: You're referring to the Origin, yeah, vehicles yeah, yeah. In- so,
1: <clears throat> and I think, I think you had an opportunity to to check out. It's called the Cruise Origin. Uh, you know, you all can Google it, and it's it's a really elegant design vehicle. I think it looks like a lot of the other platforms or the other vehicles that are that are emerging, uh, and yet it's actually again the unique part is it's saying, oh, it will be manufactured by GM. And it'll be built on the existing technology and the existing platform that's out there and then it'll incorporate everything that they're learning through using these. I should mention, these are actually being operated with Chevy Bolts right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, that
0: people can gather. It's really passenger cars, like the standard passenger cars yeah
1: and and i think the important thing to remember too is that uh is unique amongst uh, self-driving cars is they've committed to and why i felt comfortable as an academic really doing research on their stuff is they've committed to an all-electric fleet which i think if we think about like many of us whether or not we're european or american we're looking at this idea of electric as well as automated so we really want a clean automated and then shared fleet and i think that's uh, if we look at a progression, they're starting off with a benchmark being, let's automate and, and go electric first, and then we'll move towards a shared mm-hmm. platform once we can build this robust service where we've done proof of concept. And and you have to say, the, these companies, whether or not it's Waymo and Cruise, they're driving in San Francisco, which I, I know you've been there. It's it's mm-hmm. not an easy driving environment. It may be comparable to many European cities as well. So, I think it is a, a pretty bold Project. It's not like Des Moines, Iowa, or something like that. It's not a place with uh, with with simple traffic conditions. So, it's a pretty fascinating time and place to be doing this evaluation.
0: Um. Still, to make it clear for everybody to understand again how how it works. So, to say, for now they cannot go everywhere in the city. Right. It's a, what's this what we call the operational design domain? this ODD?
1: Yeah. Is that a term that you use in Europe? Yeah. ODD? Yeah. Yeah. We do. Okay. We do the yeah. same.
0: So it's for the audience listen to, to us is really just an area, a place where the vehicles are able to operate or how would you define it? Yeah, so I you, think it's you? actually
1: a little more complicated and, and I've, I've got a, a couple presentations on this but it's, they have a spatial ODD, they have a time-based ODD um, so there's a, restrictions on, on both streets And locations that they've agreed with policymakers they can operate in. There's time-based times that they can operate in, but there's also um, weather conditions that they've agreed that they will or will not operate in, based on their view of their own performance in those weather conditions. So one of the conditions we have a lot of in, particularly in the summer in San Francisco, is fog. And right now. There are some, you know, we, there, there's some issues when you ride in the vehicles where uh, the fog limits the the sensing capabilities of the LIDAR. And so that is, I believe, overcomable. And from discussions I've had, I'm not privy to, to inside information here, but I think that that from what I've, discussions I've had, that is an uh, overcomable hurdle. Um, but there are, there are other conditions other than just geography mm-hmm. that they're they're looking space, at their mm-hmm. operational conditions or their operational do not design domains but the goal is always to expand it right
0: whether yeah. if it's yeah. time or spatial I mean, specialties
1: it's Yeah. And I think, and this gets to kind of the, I've heard a lot of people in the industry continue to talk about level five or level six. I mean, honestly, even at level four, there's opportunities to improve and nudge toward this idea of fully self-driving in all conditions. Uh, But I think what they're achieving now is pretty remarkable in terms of driving in almost every condition Mm -hmm. in really complicated situations where you have a lot of corner cases and you have a lot of mixed traffic and I think that's what makes uh, some of the experimentation and some of what's happening with the the Bay Area companies particularly really unique
0: mm-hmm. yeah so to, re- to remind everybody level five would be like this fully autonomous I'm sorry I got no right, right. we had an introduction about that in one of the first episodes but just for everyone to be reminded of it so level four would be there is no one behind the wheel but in specific conditions and level four will, uh, will, level five will be like fully autonomous.
1: That's right. That's right. I, I apologize for that. I, I don't. I don't like these things. These, these the scale of, of rating that, that makes things completely opaque to the public. But it, <laughs> but it is the, <laughs> no. the vernacular we have in in wonk world.
0: And you mentioned the policymakers very briefly about like saying that for this ODD it was kind of an agreement between crews and the policymakers. How was the? Permit process. How did crews get uh, authorization?
1: Like, can you yeah, tell us a word how um, it
0: works in California in general? If it,
1: it would well, be yeah, it's not just crews. I mean, there's a in California, and uh, unlike Europe, policy policy in the U.S. is basically a patchwork. Uh, the federal government has guidance that's that's offered by NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, uh, but that primarily is focused on uh, the vehicle design. And so there's guidance from the federal government, but most of the decision-making in terms of operations is done at the state level. Um, so the equivalency, I guess, would be in EUI, there may be guidance and at the country level, there may be uh, standards or licensing. Uh, there may be regional things. I, I am not aware enough of, that, of how that works in the, in the EU, uh, but so particularly in California and, and many of the Western states, um, there's separate licensing for both um, the vehicle, oper- like so, the vehicle operations as well as the rideshare, as well as um, and so there's different entities that you have to be licensed by. So, particularly for example, Cruise has been licensed by the, the California Department of Motor Vehicles as being kind of a a safe driver, um, but they've also been licensed to operate um, by the California Public Utilities Commission. So it's, it's strange. Um, The pathway was more a product of how um, transportation network companies, another acronym, TNC, uh, Uber and Lyft. uh, So it's Rideshare. Rideshare was always licensed by um, the Public Utilities Commission Mm -hmm. at the state level in, in California. It's a little bit of a third rail, but they're being licensed as if um, they were shared vehicles mm-hmm. or rideshare vehicles. And so there are two separate licenses that, that Cruise has been, or three separate, are a couple of different licenses. So first off, you have to get a, a, uh, a license just to operate with a safety driver. Uh, then you have to get a license that actually is a driver's license. You do lots of testing, you submit that data, and then finally you can actually do a well actually you can do driver ride and then you actually have it's a separate permit to operate a paid service. So Cruise and Neuro another company in the Bay Area that actually does delivery robots.
0: Logistic, right?
1: Yeah, they're a logistic company. They're the two companies that have every one of those licenses at this point. And so both of them can operate a commercial service. And again, there's a, it's a tiered licensing system mm-hmm. where you have to reach certain performance benchmarks and then get approved um, by the regulatory agency um, and this is this is way beyond the driving function. It's about service and operational conditions. And cities get a right to weigh in on that. They get a right to weigh in on that decision. And, and for example, in San Francisco, they've done a great job of highlighting some some corner cases and some things they're concerned about, and and the companies have been responsive.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a, the goal at the end; it should be like a dialogue. That's right? right.
1: I mean, that is the goal, and and I think sometimes it gets uh, it gets more hostile than it needs to be. But the, the idea here is it's iterative.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we can, from a European perspective, we can learn a lot from the way uh, this was also implemented in discussion with the city and this technical uh, challenges that needs to be revo- resolved and everything and all these dialogues taking place that's something we, we can learn from if at some point such a service would come to Europe well, yeah, we yeah. can come to that later Why speaking think about thing- transferability to Europe we, I would like to put that aside if you're okay yeah <laughs> it's, fine, it's fine I would like now to dig into a bit more detail regarding the studies that you have these ridership uh, studies that you have conducted because I think Found it very interesting, but um, maybe I would put the link for the paper uh, that relate to that in the description of the episode. But can you present it to the audience? Uh, what was the goal of the study? What you wanted to investigate, and uh, what what you what you found out?
1: Yeah, um, well, so we had a unique opportunity to take a subset of. Uh, of students of mine, about 300 students, and actually put them, uh, before there was a paid ride service, put them in, in vehicles to really understand travel behavior during these off-peak hours when transit was less frequent. And so really the idea was to think about how you could supplement or complement uh, service in a way that was elegant and allowed for, uh, didn't poach your transit service, but also uh, allowed for off-peak, off-peak service that was elegant and affordable. Uh, so uh, again, we, so we set up this experiment where we would have uh, these, ride, these individuals take rides in vehicles between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m., uh, and they would report back. Uh, not only we, we got information in terms of their, where they went, so their origin, where they started, and where they finished up, their destination, but we also got how, you know, how and why they took that trip, um, how they would have traveled otherwise, and we had some baseline data that showed how they did travel uh, before that, uh, and then kind of the attributes that were driving them to travel in that way uh, in the autonomous vehicle. So the goal was really to understand travel patterns. Did we induce or create that travel demand? So that did, did just having a vehicle make them travel more or having this autonomous vehicle make them travel more? And then finally, you know, why were they taking that trip? What drove that trip and what were the attributes that really attracted them to uh, this autonomous vehicle? Mm-hmm. Uh so I can go into kind of I want to pause yeah, there, it, but it, but it,
0: no, I really would like to know what what was yeah. the result. So what what came out? With so this?
1: you know what we're finding, and we're still gathering this data. We're actually working to expand uh, this study uh, pretty dramatically over the next six months. Um, but what, you know what we generally what we found is that most of these trips, what we would call either there was existing demand or latent demand. So we found that. Um, there were travel needs that were both unmet, and that was about between 20 and 30% of, of what we saw.
0: Okay, so for example,
1: uh, lack of access to yeah, public transit. Exactly, or, I mean like so- Or they
0: don't have a car themselves.
1: Exactly, you you, you wanna do laundry a certain night, you don't have access to car transit and you gotta to go to the laundromat, uh, but you don't take the trip to do your laundry because you just can't, and so you end up with dirty clothes. Uh, I think so that
0: would be latent demand. That
1: would be, latent, yeah. Well, well, yeah, we call that latent demand. Um, and so what we were doing there is exploring, is that an induced factor or is that a latent mm-hmm. factor? And we would say that that desire to make that trip, that need is there. Um, we had a lot of students that actually wanted to go to work, for example, during those days. And, and they had limited access or they were, they were taking less than optimal ways of getting there. They were, for example, riding a bike without a light uh, at, at 11 p.m. and and it's just not safe. Uh, or they were, you know, they were driving intoxicated. And those are just situations we want. That's that's why we we want to have autonomous vehicles, right? We want to improve roadway safety uh, in totality. I think we forget that sometimes about the, the kind of the safety and public health benefits of automation. Um, but by and large, you know, the biggest result we found was actually not uh, was not this latent demand. It's actually people shifting from. Rideshare vehicles or human-driven vehicles that were Uber, Lyft, any other kind of rideshare service to this service. So you know what's unique about that is is a lot of people have have created a narrative that that automation is a transit killer, and I I think that what we have to keep in mind is it's non-binary that it's. Uh, we really can plan optimal solutions and we can plan operational design domains that actually are really complementary with transit. And so we saw about 55% of our trips actually being people that otherwise would have taken Uber or Lyft, which I find yeah. really unique. I mean, I think there is the thing, so like I had a, a one reviewer on this paper say, well, so what? <laughs> what does that mean? And I think what it means to me is that you can have a safer ride And you can have, for example, a female individual that isn't comfortable in a vehicle with with a male at midnight and you can meet a need for a trip in a way that is, you can be assured with, at least with this cruise service that it is uh, close to zero emission. And for me, that's that's starting down a path that if we can start to think about a shared vehicle or shared experience, I think that is the goal that many transportation engineers and city planners uh, aspire to.
0: Yeah, and we have a similar discussion at UATP with this comparing, like thinking about how robotaxi taxi would influence public transit, public transport, ridership and so on. But there are two different discussions because actually most of the time we are not talking about automated robo-taxi. We are just comparing these ride-share services, right. like, door-to-door services. With the public transit, with a driver or not. Yeah. I mean, it's two different discussions, I would say. And automation is not something that goes into the discussion, but it's more how people travel and why. And why do they need to book an Uber? Uh, an Uber in in the city if uh, they cannot travel with public transit conveniently. I think it's
1: a global discussion about what the identity of transit is and, and whether or not it looks the same in 15, 20 years than it looked 30 years ago. Because right now our idea is really anchored to this idea of a 60 foot or 120 foot bus And that leaves a lot of people out in cities when we think about service equity, and 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 there's a lot of gaps in our network as a result. And so when we think about the future of transit, maybe it really is more network based than it is. uh, And and we have trunk line corridors that are very, uh, you know, a little more traditional transit services. But you know, maybe we do need to rethink the platform. And I I talk Mm -hmm. about that a lot.
0: But what do you, what what do you mean with that? Do you mean like. You could imagine a future where such service is operated by public transit. Like, is it under the umbrella of a of a public transit authority, yeah, or I mean,
1: how do how do you a, envision it? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I, I tend to steer from making that decision because I think it's an evolution, and a, and we will see we'll see kind of how it works. But I tend to try to think that these are non-binary solutions where you can actually have a private service that serves a public transit. Uh, you know, serves a public transit system, or you could have a transit operator that either contracts with or decides to procure a service, or maybe you have a big enough transit operator they can develop their own service. Candidly, from a business operation standpoint, I think that's really economically inefficient. Um, but to have the operator to turn, Yeah, himself. for the operator to, I mean, I think it's capital-wise, it's really hard for an operator to... <laughs> Buy a purpose-built vehicle. Develop the software for it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not mm-hmm. achievable. And when you think about the capital that's been spent, I mean, and uh, I, with I, public money. I, I right? told yeah. you before. I think we, before we were preparing for this, I told you there's five billion dollars that's been spent on development of autonomous driving between two companies, Cruise and Waymo. And that's and impressive. I mean, looking at what we are doing in the show project and.
0: We are very grateful for the money we, we got from the from the money that we are getting from the commission, but at the end it's 30 million euros among 70 partners. So we come to a limitation that when I hear of such investments, like we can see a clear gap.
1: Yeah, and I, I think it's important to keep in mind that people get afraid when they see private money going to something that is perceived as a public good or a public service. Mm-hmm. But one thing to keep in mind is that is that when you spend this much money on providing a ride, if there's one thing that can give public transit operators surety is that you really have to maximize the service density to recoup the capital investment. And so uh, these, both these companies are incentivized to, pick to, for, to maximize people miles in vehicles. And so I think the dialogue is pricing and service standards that we're willing to think about how do we meet the needs of the most vulnerable if we start along these roads of, uh, of partnering with these type of companies for services that we might otherwise provide through public agencies.
0: Mm-hmm. So it could look like in the future that they, they kind of have to make agreements with city where to operate or, or things similar to cruise, right? Where and when? Yeah. To be sure that okay, there is some areas of the city that are uh, not covered by public transit, and it could be a good place to
1: start with something like that. Yeah, and I think there's opportunities for deep subsidization for for certain neighborhoods or certain uh, you know interest groups or individuals. One thing that that I've thrown out to to our partners at Cruz since we've had such a great uh, research rider pilot is let's extend a. Uh, a discounted fare program. So uh, I'm unique in our. We're a very urban campus, and we're a transit first campus. So we really we try to get our students to ride transit, bike, or walk. Um, but we do have gaps as a result. And so if we could get to a point where we could have a discounted, uh, you know, rideshare autonomous rideshare service that complemented our transit, our, our students' transit use, that could be a big asset uh, for my students at my campus going forward, and. I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, students are not just something to dismiss, particularly that live in an urban area. Uh, and just because they're students doesn't make them participants in our transportation ecosystem. So I, I hear a lot of times with research, oh, you did research on students, and so it doesn't matter. And I was like, no, that actually does matter. They're important parts of our ecosystem. And in our case, they live in the urban community in San Francisco. And I think that's, that's a very close parallel to many universities in the EU as well.
0: I see, and um, thinking now about all the work that you have done there, and the fact that you have been, many times in Europe, collaborating, collaborating with uh, with um, partners over there. Can you tell us about a vision that you could have for a possible transferability to European cities, or what would make you think the service different? Or it's, it's a tough question. I'm not expecting you will find all the solutions because we are discussing it intensively within the show project, within UITP. But I'd like to hear your opinion about that. What are I have my own views on why uh, why cities, also heuristically, why cities in Europe are very different from the European one.
1: But I would like to hear your
0: view on that first.
1: Well, I think one thing that that came into my mind when we were having the licensing discussion a couple minutes ago is this idea of of really steering away from a one size fits all solution. And the the great part about licensing in California and a lesson that can be drawn from that is this this idea that you can have uh, different operational scenarios and different flavors of automation and different vehicle types in different mm-hmm. in different cities. And I think that's a really important lesson, both from a, a licensing and regulatory standard, but also when you think about what it looks like in different types of cities. And I, I, you know, my background in in kind of multimodal transportation really lends me this idea of, for example, a lot of the car-free city or fifteen-minute city uh, trends that are happening across Europe. And I think it's important as we think about eliminating you know, private occupancy or single occupancy vehicles that are privately owned driving in our cities, maybe we think about more, maybe it's an opportunity to think about purpose-built, you know, shared mm-hmm. autonomous solutions that supplement our transit as we take privately owned vehicles out of our cities. And I think that's, for me, that's a big opportunity for the dense European cities. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to be on every street. I think I think when we think about... Um, thoroughfares, it could be that you have, um, you, have uh, you don't have to have a completely a completely porous autonomous network. You could have certain areas that are, are inside or out of your operational domain. So you, could, you can be very flexible uh, with a vendor or with an autonomous service that, that doesn't have to. It can be more than just a, a, a fixed route circulator, but it can be a really integrated part of your transportation network in urban centers. Um, but I also think there there are potential solutions um, in smaller um, exurban areas, so uh, smaller towns where they don't have transit service. Um, the challenge there, and if you're okay with me going with one of the challenges that I foresee, course, yeah. is in the U.S. There's been a lot of struggle with providing autonomous services where um, you can't do the the cursory um, base mapping. So. Uh, a lot of the way these vehicles operate, and I, I guess I should have talked about this earlier, is that they're they're operating off a, a, a digital three D map that's extremely resolute, and they're referencing that map with the data they get, the data the vehicle ingests from sensors. And so there's no uh, there's no digital connection, but there's also for security reasons as well as as proprietary reasons, there's no requirement to be connected with infrastructure. Yeah, I think that's
0: a very important point. That, yeah. I and differenti- it differentiates a lot from the US activities that I've heard about and what we are doing in Europe where CITS, like this connectivity with the infrastructure is still kind of pushed. I don't know if it's the right path to go, but I found it interesting that the vehicles in US, most of them, the automated vehicles, are kind of independent from connectivity and can drive on their own, so to say, so without relying on on, on this exchange of information. So for the audience to understand, it would be what people are investigating is, for example, that the vehicle could communicate with traffic lights um, or like this type of, of... Infrastructure that could help them navigate in their surroundings, and this is not so much the case in the in the U.S. That's right,
1: right. and 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 I think there are a couple different perspectives on that. First off, it's um, it, it creates a patchwork network that is hard for vehicles to navigate when they're going from city to city or location to location, um, and also we have varying standards between locations. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but there's also the, you know, when you invest physical infrastructure and public entities invest physical infrastructure, that infrastructure can get um, defunct or or old really quickly, and and the issue there is that you don't want to. Design stranded assets. So you don't want to have an asset that all of a sudden ten years down the road is no longer as useful because the the technology you're evolved. supporting has yeah. evolved. Yeah. And so that I think the risk that a lot of the the private sector companies are seeing is if they rely on infrastructure, uh, then they limit their own capability of mm-hmm. development. It's got, it will get obsolete. Yeah, like and time. so I think yeah, it's yeah, one of those yeah. things where the more you can develop. Um, nice to have, but the more you can develop complementary infrastructure, it's, it's fine. But. Um, Should not rely on this, so to speak. I mean, that, yeah. what I always tell people is the best thing that, that a, a, particularly a larger, a more dense city, can do is, is address signs, lines, and potholes, and really invest in open data standards for other aspects, particularly um, like if you can start to think about curbside data availability as well as emergency emergency management data. Mm -hmm. So providing reliable uh, information about where uh, a fire fire engine or a a police car or an ambulance might be, Um, that's actually really important for self-driving car companies, as well as construction areas or when your roadway network changes. Mm -hmm. That type of dynamic data or even static data on a daily basis can be invaluable uh, for these companies to, to adjust their routing, um, but otherwise they can operate as long as there are appropriate lines on the road and there's appropriate signage. Um, the machine vision in, in the vehicles can, can handle the built environment. Yeah.
0: And there's a word again about the 3D map so that people realize it. So we have, for example, we are all familiar with, for example, Google Map, which will be only 2D, but the vehicle will have something similar Embedded in 3D meanings you have more or you have right, like resolution. More, more resolution, more details about the build environment, but it's basically the same, right? And what I found a bit surprising is that each manufacturers each service right. operator is building his own 3D map
1: And and it is something like I, I, I don't know the answer here, but I, I've thought a lot about particularly smaller. Municipalities and and looking at incentivizing autonomous you know autonomous companies to come to them if they could leverage uh, you know, providing digital maps of their road or providing a certain level of rev- you know resolution that
0: uh, a self-driving yeah
1: that a self-driving car could car company could start with now then again you'd kind of have to have a vendor chosen because you might have different standards from vendor to vendor or you'd have to be shopping you know. You, towards a certain vendor, but this is about leveraging, if it's about leveraging public funding to provide a public service or a public good, I think that actually, that could be a good starting point, particularly for smaller cities or exurban areas that necessarily don't have the service density to, to cover the capital costs required for these companies with a lot of investment to recoup their investment.
0: I think you give us really a very, very good overview about what's, what's, what's going on in, in the US and what are the, the challenges and the opportunities um, that will be addressed. And I, I'm really excited of, of seeing all this work also transferred to Europe in some way and that we manage to keep, uh, to keep a bridge between the, the two continents. Um, I'm very confident that we will manage to do so. But now I would like for, the, for moving towards um, the, the last part of this of this episode, I would like to come back more about about yourself, about what what excites you about this uh, field of automated mobility, and also maybe making a link because um, your book called End of the Road that you published quite recently. When, when was that? When was it? Published yeah, it was again? over
1: the. I published a book over the summer of 2022 called End of the Road.
0: Yeah, so we're very quite recent, <laughs> definitely. Uh, can you tell us a bit more? And I'm sure that we. We we will see also a link with uh, everything that we are discussing now because all this topic of transportation and making um, mobility of people of uh, of better in the city is also touching uh, the topic of of the road of the city and the quality of life in general. If I may make the transition in that way, so tell us more about it. Like how did you came how did you come to that uh, writing that book and yeah, what is it about um, and.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. If you check it out, you'll see that uh, it comes. It starts with a very personal story. Is I was a I was an athlete as a as a college student, and uh, uh, I guess when you think about you know me as a human being, I I actually really loved to run and experience cities on foot. I was that one uh, the weird American that liked to watch the Tour de France. Uh-huh. So there there you go, uh, you have, uh, okay. We don't have that in common. So I, <laughs> I but no, I, I think uh, what happened with me is uh, as I was uh, beginning my finishing up my studies uh, and I was uh, really uh, kind of at my prime as an athlete, I, I actually ruptured my Achilles tendon. And I talk about this in the book about how it was, it was really one of these moments where I I lost uh, I lost mobility, and I had had a plan to go to the Netherlands to study. I was trying to spit out Groningen. I was going to go to Groningen and and study uh, cycling and cycling design in in the Netherlands, uh, and was going to spend some time in Sevilla and. At the time, I, I it was just I felt like my my life was over, <laughs> uh, and I also had a had a scholarship at Oxford where I was doing um, studying some architectural and urban design uh, features as well as some comparative politics. Um, so I, I did about six months of rehab and was oh. able was able to to recover um, my ability to to walk and run uh, pretty miraculously. Um, was ended up really, and this kind of maybe kind of starts my transatlantic journey is that I was able to come to Europe and really invest in in kind of a lot of these dense walkable areas that I'd been I'd been fascinated by uh, as a as a, as a runner as a pedestrian uh, and and traveled all around explored some some places that that I would studied both in the U.S. and as well as at Oxford. And um, I think it really sets up, set up the the theory the theory that I talk about in the book that that streets can be more they can be for autonomous vehicles but they can also be for uh, for children for play uh, for living for commerce uh, for protest like and, social roads right or- yeah I mean I think we we sometimes use the term livable streets but I think or complete streets and I think that I I made the the, the phrase, uh, there's a Corbusier who's a designer, a French designer in in the middle part of the 20th century said that we must kill the road. And he was talking about it from an automotive standpoint that we, we needed to uh, redesign roads so we could actually maximize uh, automotive throughput. And I said, we should kill the road to actually kill the idea of the road and create livable streets. And I, I still believe that, but I believe that technology and automation, particularly from a, a, a safety standpoint, uh, and I'm also an individual that I've been hit by a car before, so I I know, I know what pedestrian safety is all about, and so I feel like at at a, at a certain level, um, it was a very personal story, but it aligns with my my passion for kind of mixed traffic automated solutions as being a real opportunity, both from a safety standpoint mm-hmm. as well as I think we can think of autonomous travel as being very um, connected to our goals of a pedestrian and cycling-friendly mm-hmm. city.
0: So how, do, how does a perfect city look like? Uh,
1: well, I, I don't think it looks that much different than a lot of the, the, than a lot of the aspirational goals, for example, that, that Copenhagen and Amsterdam and Paris have, have put forward where your first option really is to have um, all the... Uh, the attributes that you'd want as a, as a resident of an urban space within a walking or a cycling distance from you. And then, you You mentioned
0: this 15 minute city before, right? I did.
1: Yeah. The, the, the Carlos Moreno um, concept that you can have everything that you need within a a 15 minute, um, you know, walk or cycle from, from your home. And I think that's a very aspirational goal. I think it is a, you know, I'm not sure if, if it, if it's been looked at from an equity lens and in terms of how we think about kind of who has a right to live in the city. And I think that's a a little bit of a, I did a lot of study on kind of this idea of inclusivity and walkable and cycle areas and whether or not we were slightly exclusive in many of our cities. And that's, in my mind, that's a function of how we build housing at the same time, how we design, how we don't just think about transportation solutions, we think about housing solutions in the Netherlands they're, they're doing a lot of work on building mobility hubs that I think are exportable throughout mm-hmm. Europe as well as throughout the US and and doing a much better job than we're doing in the US that so what, the US. what
0: can you describe a mobility hub what is a mobility the- hub
1: <laughs> well I think it's 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 probably akin to what we talked about years ago about transit oriented development um, but it's actually multimodal. It's thinking about how can we build trans- transit efficient housing, so housing that is adjacent to transit or near transit, but that also has opportunities for walking, cycling, and maybe these new micro transit solutions that connect you to these other scooters. areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so, but it maybe you know I believe it also includes rideshare or. Um, maybe in the future, autonomous, you know, autonomous, share autonomous or like, you know, robo-taxi type yeah. solutions.
0: So these mobility hubs are, are really like nodes, kind of like meeting points right, of yeah. all these modes come together. If it's walking, cycling, transit and so on, they are.
1: Yeah. Kind and of I think little, the concept, even here, the
0: logistic I've heard, like mobility hubs could be even connected with delivery services and so on.
1: And I think the concept is really, if you, if you can think of it as, um, you know, it's, rail is the backbone Mm -hmm. and then when you think about you know moving beyond rail there there are efficient ways to carry people or for people to get uh, beyond your trunk lines your your core Mm -hmm. lines that are most efficient and in your I'm going to use American term. in your one, you know, one mile or your one, you know, 1K to 5K range, that is a, that's probably your bikeable range. And in in 1K, that's probably your walkable range. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about that from a, from a, you know, and I'll go back to like one mile to five mile or, you know, 1K to to 6K or 10K, um, beyond that, that's really when you start kind of needing these these. Large, these more efficient regional connectors, yeah. and maybe that looks different in terms of bus service or transit service in the future, uh, from a technology standpoint, but also from a cost-effectiveness standpoint than it does today.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there any anything you would like to highlight to close this episode? Some, some publication, maybe you have uh, you you have uh, written recently, something you are working on now, on um,
1: anything. Well, I think, you know, definitely working on uh, some stuff in kind of advancing the the future of automation. But I'll also say that I think there's a big opportunity for um, handicap accessibility Mm -hmm. and uh, disabled access, what we call paratransit in in the US. And so uh, my colleague Anurag Pandey and I have done some work uh, with regard to accessible autonomous vehicles and i think that's a close parallel to what we're discussing here and if i were to say something that is portable between the us and europe that it is this idea of you know handicap service I, I do think there's a lot of opportunity in that space if we were to think about low hanging fruit for mm-hmm. automotive services or automated services it would be in this space for moving people with disabilities
0: mhm yeah I totally see that too i mean i, I can see how it, how it connects and how we are in the show project also addressing this uh, this topic in some of our uh, sites uh, in europe just not only like the accessibility to the vehicle which is very important as well because for now you always need someone to help get into the car if you have some um, mobility impairment but also really have the service as such that could pick you uh, to to your home more door to door service for the for this uh, type of population. So yeah, that's uh, I can see the link, and we should investigate this further. Yeah,
1: yeah. So that's <laughs> available on a, as a report from the Merete Transportation Institute. They were our funder on that. So um feel I'll free definitely
0: to, put the link. Yeah, on the description and I'm happy of to, the to share
1: in, insights um, via email, or we can put the link to to some of my publications and my book on there if that's a yeah. I'll do that, definitely. Yeah, I think
0: the audience will be very happy to, to know more about what you're doing. Perfect. Thank you, Billy. Thank you for all your insights and, and your view on that. And uh, I really hope we keep con- uh, continuing the discussion between US and Europe in the future together. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Automating Mobility, the people behind the wheel. This podcast would not have been possible without the support from the Horizon 2020 program by the European Commission under the grant agreement number 875530. Check out the links for the show project and other references in the description of the episode and subscribe to our newsletter to stay tuned. Don't hesitate to share this episode or give us feedback to it. My name is Henriette Cornet from UITP and I hope to see you at our next episode.